But first, we turn uh, uh, to an interview with uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos. Uh, we started out talking about uh, climate change. Uh, she uh, recently came back from a trip to Denmark, uh, where she went with a labor delegation to uh, learn more about how the Danes are really pioneering uh, renewable energy and, and uh, doing it with a unionized uh, workforce. Uh, of course, we're uh, living in a moment where, I mean, just this summer alone, New York City has been blanketed with uh, wildfire smoke. The South is uh, suffering under a heat dome. We have a hurricane that just uh, roared through uh, Southern California and, of course, the horrible wildfires uh, out in Hawaii. So uh, action is urgent. And uh, um, so I started out asking her uh, about uh, her uh, work around climate change. Uh, so let's just uh, uh, jump right into it. Earlier this summer, uh, you went all the way to Denmark uh, to uh, look for some possible uh, uh, knowledge that could be gained about how New York could uh, uh, get out ahead of the curve on uh, renewable energy. Uh, New York has set all these high uh, standards and goals, but has been uh, rather sluggish in, in meeting those goals. What did you see in Denmark that you found uh, so hopeful? Well, one of the greatest things that I saw in Denmark was these really tall uh, wind turbines, both onshore and offshore, um, all across Denmark, actually. And really, I wanted to go there to see how this all has worked out for them because I've been desperately trying to find solutions to help my neighbors avoid a lot of the catastrophes that we've already suffered. You know, I, I represent a waterfront community in uh, Queens, uh, the neighborhoods of Jackson Heights, East Elmhurst, which is right on Flushing Bay, um, and Corona, places that often get flooded when there's heavy rainfall. I mean, Hurricane Ida two years ago really did us in. And then, of course, well, we want to put people back to work with good union jobs that are going to allow for them to provide for themselves and their families. So think putting all of these needs together, we wanted to see what the country that is doing the most and is actually on pace to reach net zero carbon neutrality um, by 2050, how it is that they're doing it um, and hopefully apply a lot of those lessons and even those relationships here in New York State. And mind you, obviously, Denmark is a very different country. The entire population of the country is over 5 million people, which is half of the population of New York City alone. Um, and it's a more homogenous society. So getting people to change their consumer behavior, to have these conversations around serious investments in wind and solar and um, geothermal and even battery storage um, is much easier. I mean, unfortunately, here we still have too many climate deniers, um, which is preventing us from taking action. And, you know, we actually want to make sure that we are taking offshore wind seriously. We want to see how we can accelerate the pace of our transition here in New York, because the CLCPA was great. The Bill of Public Renewables Act was great. We've done some really good legislative work, but that's not the mission, right? The legislation is actually the tool to get to the point where we are on pace to 
carbon neutrality ourselves. So we want to make sure that we're putting our tax dollars where our, our mouth is and really start investing in these industries and creating the supply chain behind uh, behind them so that we are fomenting an industry and therefore creating good union jobs that will bring um, a whole new paradigm to our economy as well. So can you see a scenario in five or ten years where there's uh, lots of uh, giant uh, wind turbines off the uh, the coast of uh, New York? I can. I do see that in our future, and I'm actually hoping it's a lot sooner. There are some wind turbines that are actually on their way to the south shore of Long Island, so it's not so far-fetched. It's starting. We're just working a little too slow. And, um, and of course, there is a lot to, to be done in order to uh, create these relationships with those companies, but also figure out how we can produce those wind turbines here in New York State to create those jobs. And what I meant by, you know, establishing um, the supply chain here um, so that, you know, perhaps uh, big aerospace companies like Magellan, which is actually a company that's located in Corona, Queens, that I represent, they produce parts for airplanes for LaGuardia Airport. They actually have the technology to also be able to produce wind turbines because it's very similar, and they should be doing so that so that we can explore the possibilities, of course, here on our own shorelines. So these are these are the odds and ends that we're putting together. We're working actually very closely with Cornell University's uh, ILR, Climate Jobs Institute. So shout out to Lara Skinner and Lenore Friedlander and everybody out there, um, because it's going to take uh, a lot of folks in academia, in government, in the business community in order to make this a, a real a, a reality for everyone. Right. And can you uh, uh, talk more about the role that uh, labor unions have played in the uh, wind ener- energy uh, uh, transformation in Denmark and why you see that as a, a model for New York? Well, as you know, you know, labor unions don't just fight for their members. They end up creating very important standards and expertise um, in their fields. And so I, I was very fortunate to have traveled to Denmark, not only with academics from Cornell and a few of my colleagues, but also labor leaders um, like Jim Shilito from the utility workers, whose members would directly be impacted. Um, because, of course, we want to start closing down all of these fossil fuel burning plants, but we want to make sure that we are doing right by those workers and properly transitioning them into the new work. So him being there so that he can observe um, all of the different uh, jobs that that are possible um, and and actually hear from the Danish themselves what that transition looked like. We actually were able to meet with the Danish uh, Energy Agency um, uh, or the DEA, if you will, a good (laughs) DEA, um, uh, about explaining how, how they went about this. Um, it was really important to have Jim there. It was really important to have Devon Lomax from the painters there. 
um, because these wind turbines need to get painted and maintained every year, right? So everybody's going to have to play a role here. And having those labor leaders there really allows us to not just imagine, but design a skeleton of what that process might look like um, so that we can get to work and, 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 and put our plan on paper. Right. And what what do you say to people who, who think of uh, wind turbines being offshore as uh, some sort of eyesore? At, I mean, that's an uh, argument that's been raised in other places. To- well, look, I mean, I, I think that I'd rather have an eyesore than uh, extreme temperatures and extreme rainfall and hurricanes. Uh, so the eyesore doesn't seem as bad, really, in comparison. It isn't comparison. beauty in the eye of the beholder? But, I mean, maybe wind turbines are beautiful. But, but that being said, it doesn't have to be within our eyesight, actually. Right? We can put wind turbines significantly offshore so that it's not uh, within our eyesight from the beach, if that so is the problem. That's actually a lot of what Long Island is starting to do now. Um, but New Jersey, New Jersey has been championing this and doing better than we are when it comes to uh, these offshore wind turbines. Oh, wait a minute. New York's playing second fiddle to New Jersey? Don't tell anybody. <laughs> well, we do have some uh, listeners in, in New Jersey, so I'm sure they can uh, uh, high five over that. Uh, but uh, uh, so another uh, aspect with climate change, uh, of course, is in the here and now. And uh, as temperatures rise, uh, uh, working conditions for uh, uh, people in in jobs that are uh, uh, exposed to the heat. Uh, is becoming more perilous. Uh, can you talk about legislation uh, you've sponsored uh, here in New York to address that? Yeah, thank you for making that very important point. Uh, a reality is that a consequence of climate change is that when it's really hot outside, workers like delivery workers, like UPS and FedEx workers, farm workers, even some of the Amazon warehouse workers, if the AC is not working, they are doing some really heavy lifting, literally, that can make them pass out because they're not being provided with the adequate number of breaks. They probably aren't being provided with a shady area to take those breaks, much less water to stay hydrated. So, of course, you know, my job, particularly as chair of labor, is to identify these issues where, you know, companies are, are just not stepping up the way they should. And this past session, I actually introduced um, a bill called the Temp Act uh, with my counterpart, um, Assemblywoman Latoya Joyner, where we're proposing exactly what I just said, that companies provide their workers with adequate amount of time for breaks, for catching their breath, for going to the restroom, for staying hydrated, making sure that they have access to water. Um, and, and this is really, really important unless we do something to, to, you know, slow down climate change. Um, so I'm really hoping that this is at the top of the order once we return to session this January. Okay. Uh, and, um, also another aspect of climate change is it, it in part, uh, drives, uh, migration, um, along with, uh, uh, poverty and crime and in, in, in countries like Venezuela and Cuba, uh, U.S. sanctions, uh, only pile on and make it worse. But climate change is definitely 
uh, part of the problem. Uh, uh, can you uh, talk uh, about how you feel the city is handling the influx of uh, migrants uh, we're seeing? Well, that's an easy question. Uh, it's being handled very poorly. You know, actually, before the the um, big wave of asylum seekers that, that has been arriving now for about a year to here to New York, I first started to notice uh, the effect of climate change on immigration with the Pakistani floods that mm. happened. Um, and, you know, in Jackson Heights, we have a very sizable and vibrant South Asian uh, population. And we started to see um, a small influx of Pakistani immigrants arriving um, because they they lost their homes and they had nowhere else to go. Um, this is this is a very real humanitarian crisis. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think that um, that is the sentiment that is being communicated through the actions of the city, the current city administration. You know, it, it, it's I it's we're not in crisis because of the asylum seekers. For starters, the asylum seekers themselves are in crisis because they don't have a home because they're looking for safety. And when when we're reading articles from Gothamist, for example, that state that there are 13,000 rent stabilized apartments that sit empty every year, knowing full well that before. For that 100,000 asylum seekers arrived, we already had 100,000 homeless New Yorkers, including children, sleeping on the street, going to bed at night hungry, right? Knowing full well that not only do we have these rent-stabilized apartments, but there are whole neighborhoods like Hudson Yards where there are luxury apartments that sit empty year-round. What, what, what the crisis is is a political will. We have a crisis of the political will to resolve our housing crisis, to put housing first, not create so many obstacles for people to be able to qualify for housing and ensure that we're providing them and with the services and with the economic opportunities um, that are necessary. Look, I mean, an, another issue that we're having that goes um, hand in hand with this one is the, the rise in street vendors in, in, in Queens and across the city. Because the problem is when we don't have immigration reform at this, at the national level, that means that these people are having a really hard time finding a good quality job because they don't have any working papers. So the work that is available to them is actually quite dangerous. The men, mostly men, you might decide to become a day laborer and we know what that story is like here in new york it's very dangerous to be a non-union construction worker the women might go into domestic work the and, and and a lot of them end up going into street vending and this unfortunately is not being respected despite being honest work and it shouldn't be pit against those of us who have been living here for a long time who have been begging the city for more sanitation and more services for our streets. We don't want our vendors to go to jail. We want clean streets and we want the city to establish a system of vending that will bring order, that will bring regulation, that will bring taxation. But the formalization of those smallest businesses will allow them to have a fighting chance to actually make ends meet in one of the most expensive cities in the world. The math doesn't math. Uh, we, are, we are actually throwing our taxpayer dollars away every time we put up and take down 
these refugee camps, whether it's on Randall's Island or anywhere else. We're wasting time, we're wasting resources, not helping these folks actually attain the economic opportunity that they deserve and have been so desperately seeking. And how would you assess overall the job that the Adams administration is is doing at this juncture? Is the the poorly handled migrant crisis emblematic of larger dysfunction in city government? Well, you know, I have a very unique perspective having worked for the previous mayor. Um, I was part of the team that helped put universal pre-K together. So it's been really disheartening for me, particularly as a mother, to see how uh, 3K, how the daycare system um, and daycare providers have been denied the compensation and, 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 and the payment for their services. And actually, it's become harder for people to find childcare, not easier. So that's another point of, of, of criticism for me. You know, my, both of my kids are now school age. And actually, my youngest child attends an elementary school that got a half a million dollar budget cut last year. And, you know, those budget cuts aren't, aren't, aren't you know, aren't just nothing. Half a million dollars. It's not like, oh, you know, the school is under enrolled, so we're going to send fewer toilet paper rolls this month to that school. No, the budget cut translates to fewer arts and music teachers. It translates to um, a, a guidance counselor getting uh, removed or laid off. These are dire dire consequences at a time when, you know, we just survived the pandemic. I have children in my district who lost both parents. Um, we need more resources right now, not less. Right. Now, you can imagine where maybe where some of these questions are headed, which is um, in uh, in the May Independent, uh, we, we listed seven uh, people we thought could be potential strong challengers to Eric Adams. Um, in 2025, uh, you were one of them. And then, and, uh, more recently, the, the New York Times, uh, reported on a meeting of progressive, uh, I guess, uh, uh, leaders or uh, influencers, uh, who were casting about hoping to find a 2025 mayoral candidate. Um, and, and, uh, your name apparently is being, uh, bandied about. Uh, you, your thoughts on this? Uh, I, I, I know you're not going to announce anything right, right away, but uh, one, just the, I guess, sort of the consideration and, and the fact that your name keeps on popping up. And um, well, that's all very flattering. I mean, I, I think above all that speaks to my work ethic, that speaks to my legislative record, and that speaks to the love that that hopefully is palpable. Um, you know, the love that I feel for my community. Um, I just announced that I'll be running for re-election next year. Um, so I'm definitely going to be returning to the state Senate in 2024, um, voters willing, um, and we'll see what the future holds. The truth is that, you know, being a lifelong diehard New Yorker, loving my city the way I do, I'm ready to serve in any way that is required of me. Um, and whether, whether that's being front or center or playing a supportive role in ensuring that our city is administered appropriately, um, you can always count me in. You can, you can always count on me for that team. Okay. So not ruling anything out. Uh, people can, uh, 
maybe draw some hope uh, hope from that. Uh, New York's still looking for its first uh, female year a mayor after more than 300 years, um, as well as uh, maybe a mayor with a little bit more uh, substance and uh, focus on the job. Um, I, I assume uh, maybe if we if we get a new mayor, the next one won't spend quite as much time uh, at the at the nightclubs and the uh, less swagger and more work. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Now, one other disappointing uh, New York, big D- New York disappointment uh, this year uh, has been the the downfall of the New York Mets. I know you're a passionate uh, baseball fan, and um, if you want to uh, weigh in on that for a moment, okay. uh, well, well, for for the record, we're not out, so we're still in. And, and um, you can take heart from the fact the Yankees are also. Uh, Yes, both New out. York team, both New York teams are having a lot of trouble um, in the past weeks and months. Look, I mean, we started out with a sixty million dollar roster, which was unprecedented. Um, I, I'm, I'm particularly as, as as a Colombian New Yorker, very happy that Quintana is back pitching the way he is. Um, I mean, he's only had three runs scored on him um, for the past few games, so I, I'm feeling really proud and kind of waiting for the Quintana jersey to go to be sold so that I could buy one. Um, but we'll see if if they have enough time to turn it around. I'll, I, you know, I'll, I'll never lose faith until until I absolutely have to. So I'm still rooting for my Mets. Um, and if not, well, there's always next year. That's the good thing about being a Mets fan is we're so used to being disappointed that well. We'll, we'll always carry our hope until next year. Right. And, and uh, also, uh, the, the Mets owner, Steve Cohen, uh, the richest owner in baseball, but he's also uh, angling for a, a, a casino license out in Flushing. Um, your, in Corona. Your, I'm sorry. So your thoughts, does, does Queens, uh, is that like a real economic development uh, or – are casinos real economic development? Is it something philosophical? Nobody needs a casino, John. <laughs> uh, nobody needs a casino. Nobody needs to gamble. Um, but unfortunately, we live in a place called New York where casinos have largely, and, 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 and entertainment in general, right? I mean, golf clubs. Um, ski resorts have traditionally been seen as a means to create jobs and to foment uh, economic activity in specific areas. I think that it's actually generally, I think it's very sad that that's our state of affairs um, when we could be uh, incentivizing uh, more creation and building of affordable housing and services, supportive housing that we actually need. Um, but that's an ongoing conversation between Steve Cohen and my community. I was very fortunate to, to host a very robust, um, town hall in, in late spring, early summer. And I'm hoping to have a second town hall come fall. It will be a decision that we make as a community. Um, and, uh, I'm looking forward to continuing that conversation. Um, and seeing what can be done. The reality is that no matter where that casino gets built, because a casino will be built. Um, mm-hmm. it, it will be the people of my district who end up uh, filling those hospitality jobs, as we always do. Um, so it's it's really a question about whether it needs to be in our backyard or not and what that actually means for the long-term health of my community. Okay, well, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, uh, State Senator Jessica Ramos from Queens. 
Uh, thank you, as always, for joining us on the Independent News Hour. It's always great to have you with us.